Chapter Six of the Love Affairs of a Bibliomaniac. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Love Affairs of a Bibliomaniac by Eugene Field. Chapter Six. My Romance with Fiametta. My bookseller and I came nigh to blows some months ago over an edition of Boccaccio, which my bookseller tried to sell me. This was a copy in the original, published at Antwerp in 1603, prettily rubricated and elaborately adorned with some forty or fifty copper-plates illustrative of the text. I dare say the volume was cheap enough at thirty dollars, but I did not want it. My reason for not wanting it gave rise to that discussion between my bookseller and myself, which became very heated before it ended. I said very frankly that I did not care for the book in the original, because I had several translations done by the most competent hands. Thereupon my bookseller ventured that aged and hackneyed argument which has for centuries done the book trade such effective service namely that in every translation no matter how good that translation may be there is certain to be lost a share of the flavor and spirit of the meaning fiddle-dee-dee said i do you suppose that these translators who have devoted their lives to the study and practice of the art are not competent to interpret the different shades and colors of meaning better than the mere dabbler in foreign tongues. And then, again, is not human life too short for the lover of books to spend his precious time digging out the recondite allusions of authors, lexicon, in hand? My dear sir, it is a wickedly false economy to expend time and money for that which one can get done much better and at a much smaller expenditure by another hand. From my encounter with my bookseller I went straight home and took down my favorite copy of the Decameron, and thumbed it over very tenderly, for you must know that I am particularly attached to that little volume. I can hardly realize that nearly half a century has elapsed since Isolde Harding and I parted. She was such a creature as the great novelist himself would have chosen for a heroine. She had the beauty and the wit of those Florentine ladies who flourished in the fourteenth century, and whose graces of body and mind have been immortalized by Boccaccio. Her eyes, as I particularly recall, were specially fine, reflecting from their dark depths every expression of her varying moods. Why I called her Fiametta I cannot say, for I do not remember, perhaps from a boyish fancy merely. At that time Boccaccio and I were famous friends. We were together constantly, and his companionship had such an influence upon me that for the nonce I lived and walked and had my being in that distant romantic period when all men were gallants and all women were grand dames and all birds were nightingales. I bought myself an old Florentine sword at Noseda's in the Strand and hung it on the wall in my modest apartments. Under it I placed Boccaccio's portrait and Fiametta's, 
and I was wont to drink toast to these beloved counterfeit presentments in flagons, mind you, genuine antique flagons, of Italian wine. Twice I took Fiametta boating upon the Thames, and once to view the Lord Mayor's pageant. Her mother was with us on both occasions, but she might as well have been at the bottom of the sea, for she was a stupid old soul, wholly incapable of sharing or appreciating the poetic enthusiasms of romantic youth. Had Fiametta been a book, ah, unfortunate lady, had she but been a book, she might still be mine, for me to care for lovingly and to hide from profane eyes, and to attire in crushed levant and gold, and to cherish as a best-beloved companion in mine age. Had she been a book, she could not have been guilty of the folly of wedding with a yeoman of Lincolnshire. Ah, me! What rude awakenings too often dispel the pleasing dreams of youth! When I revisited England in the sixties, I was tempted to make an excursion into Lincolnshire for the purpose of renewing my acquaintance with Fiametta. Before, however, I had achieved that object, this thought occurred to me. You are upon a fool's errand. Turn back, or you will destroy forever one of the sweetest of your boyhood illusions. You seek Fiametta in the delusive hope of finding her in the person of Mrs. Henry Boggs. There is but one Fiametta, and she is the memory abiding in your heart. Spare yourself the misery of discovering in the hearty, fleshy Lincolnshire Hasif the decay of the promises of years ago. Be content to do reverence to the ideal Fiametta, who has built her little shrine in your sympathetic heart. Now, this was strange counsel, yet it had so great weight with me that I was persuaded by it, and after lying a night at the Swan and Quiver Tavern, I went back to London, and never again had a desire to visit Lincolnshire. But Fiametta is still a pleasing memory, ay, and more than a memory to me, for whenever I take down that precious book and open it, what a host of friends do troop forth! Cavaliers, princesses, courtiers, damoiselles, monks, nuns, equerries, pages, maidens, humanity of every class and condition, and all instinct with the color of the master magician Boccaccio. And before them all cometh a maiden with dark, glorious eyes, and she beareth garlands of roses. The moonlight falleth like a benediction upon the Florentine garden slope, and the night wind seeketh its cradle in the laurel tree, and fain would sleep to the song of the nightingale. As for Judge Methuen, he loves his Boccaccio quite as much as I do mine, and being somewhat of a versifier, he has made a little poem on the subject, a copy of which I have secured surreptitiously and do now offer for your delectation. One day upon a topmost shelf I found a precious prize indeed, which father used to read himself, but did not want us boys to read. A brown old book of certain age, as type and binding seemed to show, while on the spotted title page 
appeared the name Boccaccio. I'd never heard that name before, but in due season it became, to him who fondly brooded o'er those pages, a beloved name. Adown the centuries I walked, mid pastoral scenes and royal show, with seniors and their dames I talked, the crony of Boccaccio. Those courtly knights and sprightly maids, who really seemed disposed to shine, in gallantries and escapades, anon became great friends of mine. Yet was their sentiment with fun, and oftentimes my tears would flow, at some quaint tale of valor done, as told by my Boccaccio. In boyish dreams I saw again bucolic belles and dames of court, the princely youths and monkish men arrayed for sacrifice or sport. Again I heard the nightingale sing as she sang those years ago, in his embowered Italian veil, to my revered Boccaccio. And still I love that brown old book I found upon the topmost shelf. I love it, so I let none look upon the treasure but myself. And yet I have a strapping boy, who I have every cause to know, would to its full extent enjoy the friendship of Boccaccio. But boys are oh so different now from what they were when I was one. I fear my boy would not know how to take that old raconteur's fun. In your companionship, O oh friend, I think it wise alone to go, plucking the gracious fruits that bend where'er you lead Boccaccio. So rest you there upon the shelf, clad in your garb of faded brown. Perhaps some time my boy himself shall find you out and take you down. Then may he feel the joy once more that thrilled me, filled me years ago, when reverently I brooded o'er the glories of Boccaccio. Out upon the vile brood of imitators, I say, Get ye gone, ye bandolos, and ye straparolas, and ye other charlatans, who would fain possess yourselves of the empire which the genius of Boccaccio bequeathed to humanity. There is but one master, and to him we render grateful homage. He leads us down through the cloisters of time, and at his touch the dead become reanimate, and all the sweetness and the valor of antiquity recur heroism, love, sacrifice, tears, laughter, wisdom, wit, philosophy, charity, and understanding are his auxiliaries. Humanity is his inspiration, humanity his theme, humanity his audience, humanity his debtor. Now it is of Tancred's daughter, he tells, and now of Rossignoli's wife, Anon of the cozening gardener he speaks, and anon of Alabec. Of what befell Gillette de Narbonne, of Iphigenia and Simon, of Saladin, of Calandrino, of Dianora, and Ansaldo we hear. And what subject soever he touches, he quickens it into life, and he so subtly invests it with that indefinable quality of his genius as to attract thereunto not only our sympathies, but also our enthusiasm. Yes, truly, he should be read with understanding, 
what author should not? I would no more think of putting my Boccaccio into the hands of a dullard than I would think of leaving a bright and beautiful woman at the mercy of a blind mute. I have hinted at the horror of the fate which befell Isolde Harding in the seclusion of Mr. Henry Boggs' Lincolnshire estate. Mr. Henry Boggs knew nothing of romance, and he cared less. He was wholly incapable of appreciating a woman with dark, glorious eyes and an expanding soul. I'll warrant me that he would, at any time, gladly have traded a Decameron for a copy of The Gentleman's Poulterer, or for a year's subscription to that gruesome monument to human imbecility, London Punch. Ah, Isolt, hast thou but been a book. End of chapter 6